0: Welcome to Be Set Free, the radio outreach of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. Be Set Free features the teaching ministry of Pastor Nick Katie. Pastor Nick's desire is to bring the gospel into our lives so we can experience the joy and freedom that can only be found through Jesus. Today's message comes from our series, The Five Solas, looking at the impact of the five core beliefs of the Reformation 500 years later. Here is Pastor Nick
1: in response to that God said Abraham I saw that I saw what you did there and I want you to know Abe it blessed my heart I I I want you to know how much I I see that and it blesses me to know that you choose me over wealth and riches and security and he says Abraham I want to encourage you with something I want to remind you that I am going to be with you that I am going to protect you and I am going to reward you nice right but look at how Abraham responds you would think that Abraham, would like if God said it to me, I'd be like, well, awesome, thank you, you know, cool. But here's what Abraham says. He says, he kind of pushes back, right? He's like, wait a second. I mean, I hear you making these promises. I hear what you're saying, but when is this going to happen? Because I've been waiting for a while now. You see, a few years before this, God had come to Abraham back in Ur of the Chaldees, which is where Abraham was from. At the time, Abraham was an idol worshiper. He wasn't looking for God, but God came looking for him. And God looked at Abraham, and he said, that's my guy. I'm going to do something special with him. And God spoke to Abraham, and he said, Abe, it's me, God Almighty, Lord of heaven and earth. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to stop worshiping idols. I want you to worship me, and I want you to come and follow me. I want you to take my hand, and I'm going to take you where I'm going to take you, and I'm going to bless you more than you could ever imagine. I'm going to make you into a great nation, and through you All nations, all people of the world will be blessed. You see, here was God's plan. Starting with Abraham, God was going to create a new nation from scratch. And through that nation, he would reveal himself to the world. And ultimately, through that nation would come the Savior of the whole world. The only problem was Abraham was old. And his wife was also no spring chicken. They didn't have any kids And to make it even worse, they were past the age when you can actually have kids. But Abraham said, you know what? I'm gonna choose to trust God even though it doesn't seem very likely, even though I don't know how it's gonna work out. I'm gonna choose to trust God even if the odds are stacked against us. But now, here we are, a couple chapters later, a couple years have passed, a lot of time has passed, and still no kids. And so here's God just reiterating the promise, and Abraham's like, yeah, okay, but when? because I've been waiting for a while already. It's really hard to become a great nation when you don't have any kids. And so when God speaks to Abraham here in chapter 15, Abraham voices his concern, he voices his frustration. He says, but Lord, I want to believe, but I don't see anything happening. I'm still childless. I want to believe that what you're telling me is true, but I'm struggling because I don't see it. And so it says there in verse five that God took Abraham outside and he said, Abe, look up at the stars. If you ever been camping, if you've ever been driving in a really remote place at night, you know what this is like. You get away from the lights of the city, you look up in the middle of the night, if it's a clear sky, you see so many stars. And that's what Abraham would have seen. And God says, Abe, that's how many descendants you're going to have. And it says right there in verse six, Abraham believed God and God counted it to him as righteousness. So what is righteousness? Righteousness means right standing before God. Another way to put it, is this, you could say, righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors. So will say that again. Righteousness is a validating performance record that opens doors. Kind of like a resume. That's what a resume is. It's a performance record that opens doors for you. When you apply for a job, you hand them a resume. You say, here are the things that I've done. Here's, here's the things that I have accomplished and achieved. These are the things that prove that I am worthy to be accepted to this position. And every religion in every culture believes that this is how it works with God as well, that if you want to connect with God, you get out your resume, your moral performance record, and you present it to God. And you say, here's the reason why you should accept me, because I have done these things. I have accomplished these things. I've been good enough. Therefore, you should accept me. But see, here with Abraham and then throughout the Bible, we see a completely different way of approaching God, a way which says, no matter what, your performance record can never be enough. No matter what you've achieved, no matter how good you've tried to be, it can never be enough. But because God loves you, there is a righteousness which is from God, a validating performance record that will open the door. There is a validating performance record that is good enough and God will give that to you as a gift if you will humble yourself and receive it by faith. Did Abraham deserve this? No. Not at all. He was an idol worshiper. That's a terrible resume. But God offered Abraham a gift, and Abraham received it by faith. And God looked at Abraham and said, you're righteous. It says that God counted it to him as righteousness. That's an accounting term. It's a banking term. Imagine if you're broke. Some of you guys are like, it doesn't take a lot of imagining. I can imagine that. So imagine you're broke. And then a wealthy person transfers all of their assets into your account. That's the picture of what God has done for us with righteousness when we put our faith and our trust in him. You're bankrupt and he transfers all of his assets into your account. And so what does this do for our lives? Three things, this is what we're gonna look at for the remainder of our time here. Three things, if righteousness is a gift that is received by faith, then three things. Number one, it can't be earned. Number two, you can rest from your striving and number three, you are free to serve God and others for the right reasons. We're going to look at each of these as we go on. So first of all, if righteousness is a gift that you receive by faith, that means that it can't be earned. And I want to show you the rest of this story because it's really interesting. Look what happens next in, here in chapter 15 of Genesis. If you go down to like verse 8, Abraham says, OK, God, I believe you. I believe what you're saying. But is there anything that you can do for me to kind of Help me to be sure that you're really going to do this. And so God says, okay, I'll tell you what. And over the next few verses, verse 9, he says, here's what I want you to do. Bring me a three-year-old heifer, cow. Bring me a three-year-old goat. And bring me a three-year-old ram. And then bring me a turtle dove and a young pigeon. Super weird, but okay, whatever. He's going to do it. So it says the next verse, verse 10. So Abraham brought all these things, and then what did he do? He cut them in half, right? He killed these animals and cut them in half, and then he laid each half opposite the other half. And the birds, he did not cut in half. He just killed them and left them laying there, I guess. So what is going on? Super strange. Here's what's going on. This is an ancient custom. And that's why when God said, hey, I want you to bring me these things, he didn't have to tell Abraham to cut them in half. Abraham already knew to cut them in half because that's what you would do in this ancient custom. He knew exactly what this was. You see, in the ancient world, you didn't sign contracts the way that we sign contracts. This is how you make a contract. Cut some animals in half. And then what you would do is you would take these animals, you slaughter them, you lay them out, create a pathway between them. And then the two parties who were entering into this agreement would walk down this path of blood and dead animals. And they would meet in the middle and they would state their agreement, what they were agreeing to do. And then the agreement would be, you could say, sealed in blood. And essentially what it was saying is this. You're basically saying, if I don't hold up my end of the bargain, if I don't do what I said I would do, then may what happened to these animals happen to me. May I... Be killed. May my blood be shed. May I be put to death. It was just a very dramatic acting out of making this point that you were dead serious about what you were promising to do. But check out what happens next. In verse 12, we read this. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then in verse 13 through 16, God repeats his promises to Abraham. And then in verse 17, here's what happened. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking firepot and a flaming torch passed between the pieces. And on that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. I want you to notice the wording there. It's very intentional. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham. It doesn't say on that day, Abraham and the Lord entered into an agreement. It doesn't say Abraham and the Lord made a decision together. No, it says the Lord entered into a covenant He did it. It's one-sided. That's the whole point. See, he had put Abraham to sleep. The way this was supposed to work usually is that the two parties would meet halfway, right? It was 50-50. You come halfway, I'll come halfway. We'll meet in the middle. But God stepped in and he put Abraham to sleep. You can't meet somebody halfway when you're asleep. And then while Abraham's asleep and indisposed, God walks through that aisleway of blood and he enters into the covenant by himself. He didn't meet Abraham halfway. It wasn't 50-50. God did it all himself. And so what was there left for Abraham to do? Like he wakes up and he's like, "Okay, I'm ready to do my part. And what does God say? I already did it. I already entered into the covenant. So what's there left for Abraham to do? Nothing. By the time he woke up, everything's done. The only thing he was possibly able to do was just believe, was just to trust that God indeed was going to do what God had sworn by himself that he would do. And the message for us is this, that if you come to God, if you want to come to God, it's not going to be 50-50. It's not going to be you meeting him in the middle. The message of the gospel is this, that like Abraham, you have an impossible problem that you cannot solve, something that you cannot fix. And yet God, in his goodness and love, comes in and he does everything. So what is your part in this? Your part is this. All you can do is believe, trust, have faith in what he said and what he's done for you on your behalf. You see, what we see here with Abraham is a little preview. It's a foreshadowing. It's a pattern of how God works and what is to come in Jesus. This is the way that God works. This is the way that righteousness is transferred to a person. You can't earn it. It's not something that that you can deserve. No, it's something that has to be given to you by God, and you receive it by faith. You see, this message that the way of receiving salvation, the way of receiving righteousness, is by faith alone, this was something that Jesus talked about a lot. He said the most famous verse in the Bible, right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him, believes, would not perish, but have eternal life.
0: You've been listening to a message by Pastor Nick Cady of Whitefields Community Church in Longmont, Colorado. We'll get back to the remainder of this message in a moment. We are open for in-person worship on Sunday mornings with services at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Come grow with us on Sunday mornings, online or in person at 8, 9.30, and 11 a.m. Now, back to Pastor Nick with the remainder of today's message.
1: We read about another time when some people came to Jesus and they asked him, What must we do to do the works that God requires of us? And Jesus responded, and he said, Here are the works of God, to believe in him whom he sent. To believe. And this brings up a very important question. If faith is so important, clearly it is, then what exactly does it even mean to have faith? Furthermore, how much faith do you have to have in order to be saved? Because there are times when maybe you feel, maybe I feel, that our faith isn't very strong, that we might wonder if we have enough faith to be saved or or for God to work. But here's what I want you to remember. You are not saved by your faith. You're not saved by the amount of your faith. You're not saved by the strength of your faith. You know what you're saved by? You're saved by the object of your faith, who is Jesus. So then what does it mean to have faith? The reformers said that there are three ingredients involved in faith. Three ingredients, they broke it down this way. They said knowledge, assent, and trust. Three things, knowledge, assent, and trust. Knowledge means knowing about something, right? Like how can you believe in something? How can you trust in something if you don't know that it exists? So knowledge. The second part is assent. This is the intellectual part where you say, okay, in theory, I believe that that's true. And then the third element is super key. this is where a lot of people miss it. It's the element of trust. In other words, not only do I know that it exists, not only do I agree with this concept in theory, but I go beyond that and I entrust myself to it. I put myself in its hands. I heard about a story. I don't know if this is true or not, but I heard this story about this guy who was a tightrope walker and he would walk the tightrope over Niagara Falls. Here he was, there's a huge crowd gathered on both sides of the falls. And he's walking across Niagara Falls. And every time he would walk across, people would cheer. They would go crazy. They they were just absolutely excited to watch this guy do it. And, the, you know, he'd come to the other side, the crowd would go nuts, they'd go wild. And then he'd do it again, and they'd go wild again. And then he got a wheelbarrow, and he would push the wheelbarrow across there, and he'd know, have the wheel balanced on the, on the tightrope that he was walking. You know, it was an incredible thing. I mean, one move either way in either direction, and he's going to be a goner, but he would make it, and the people would go crazy. And then he'd get to the one side, and then he finally decided he's going to ask a question. He said, okay, who thinks that I can do it again? And everybody's, oh, yeah, you got this. You can totally do it. And he says, okay, now check this out. Who thinks that I can put a person in this wheelbarrow and push the person over to the other side? And they're all like, that's crazy. But yeah, you got it. You can do this. You can do anything. You're amazing. And then, of course, what did he do next? He said, okay, you. He picks out somebody in the crowd and said, okay, you think I can do it? I want you to get in the wheelbarrow, and I'm going to push you across the waterfall. You see, that's the point where you're no longer just knowing that this guy can do it, and you're no longer just assenting to the fact that he probably could push somebody across in a wheelbarrow, but you're actually entrusting yourself to it and saying, okay, I'm going to put myself in that place of trust. That's what we're talking about when we talk about faith. It's those three elements... Faith in Jesus is made of those three elements as well. Knowledge, knowing who he is and what he did. Assent, like assenting intellectually to the fact that the things that the gospel says are probably true, that they work in theory. And then trust, which is when you move beyond the theoretical and you move into the personal and you entrust yourself to him and to the gospel. That is the kind of faith that we're talking about when it says that salvation is received by faith alone. So secondly, if righteousness is a gift that you receive by faith, what that means for you is that you can rest from your striving. You can rest from your striving. When you look at a person like John Wesley, or even when you look at Martin Luther, what you see is that before they came to understand the gospel, their lives were characterized by striving. There was a struggle. They were always struggling, always feeling, trying as hard as they could to be good enough, but never getting there. No matter how hard they tried, it was never good enough, and they knew it. And so they tried harder, and they tried harder, and they did more until they became absolutely depressed and discouraged and exhausted. And really, this message of try harder, do more, do better, that's what most religions really say if you, if you boil them down. Here, I'll give you a quote from Buddha. This is Buddha's final teaching to his disciples. Like He's going to stop teaching now, and he says, this is the last thing I want to say to you before I go. Here's what he said. Behold, this is my last advice to you. Strive without ceasing to earn your salvation. What an incredible burden. Now I want you to contrast that with the final words of Jesus on the cross as he breathed his last breath where he said, it is finished. I did it. I earned your salvation. You see, the way that most people think is that right standing before God is a matter of addition and subtraction. You add good works, you take away the bad stuff, and that's how you'll get good standing before God. If you do that, God will accept you. Adding the good things, subtracting the bad things, boom, you're done. But the gospel says no. No, you could never do that. Rather, salvation is not a matter of addition and subtraction. Salvation is a matter of substitution. The message of the gospel is that Jesus substituted himself for you. He gave his life as a ransom for you. He shed his blood for your sins, and your standing before God is based on what he did for you on your behalf. And because of that... You can rest from your striving. i tell you this. If you're always looking to yourself, you're going to be riding a roller coaster. The roller co- it'll be a terrible roller coaster, by the way. A terrible roller coaster of pride and despair. When you're up, like things are do- you're doing well, you're reading your Bible three hours a day, and you're praying, and you're being awesome, you're going to feel puffed up with pride. You're going to look down your nose at other people who aren't as committed, who aren't as hardcore, who aren't there where you are. But when you fail, you'll be absolutely crushed in despair. We see that in John Wesley's life. We see that exact thing. He's in college, he forms this holiness club, and he looks down his nose at other people who aren't where he's at. But later on, he wonders if he's even a Christian at all. He's crushed to the dust with despair. And this roller coaster, by the way, this is how most people live, even people who say that they're not religious. This is the way that most people live. People live this way in their careers, They live it in their families, and they live it in regard to their accomplishments. When they're doing well, they're filled with pride, and when they fail, they're crushed. Why? Because they don't have an identity, a status before God. They don't understand that who they are in God is hidden in Christ, and it can't be changed. It's only when you understand the gospel, that your identity, that your status before God, it doesn't rise or fall with your performance, because it depends not on what you do, but on what he did for you. When you really understand that, you can rest from your striving. You can rest in the salvation that God has given you in Christ. But I want to say this. There's a difference between resting from your striving and resting from doing good works. God doesn't call us by any means to rest from doing good works. But here's what he does do. When you understand the gospel, this is our third point. If righteousness is a gift which you receive by faith, then you are free to serve God and serve others for the right reasons. One thing we learned by looking at the life of John Wesley is that it's totally possible to do good things for the wrong reason. It's totally possible to do the right things for wrong reasons. Like for example, look at John Wesley. Here he is reading his Bible for three hours a day. Is that a good thing? Is it a good thing to read your Bible? Absolutely. I want to read my Bible more. Here's John Wesley. He's praying every day. He's trying to be holy. He's trying to avoid doing things that are wrong in God's eyes. Is that good? Of course that's good. He became a pastor. He became a missionary. Aren't those good things? Absolutely. But here's the problem. He was doing those things for the wrong reason. He was doing those things in a desperate attempt to get God's attention. Look at me, God. You know, to earn God's love, to earn God's favor. And at the end of the day, you could say, at the end of the day, when you really boil it down, he wasn't even doing those things for God as much as he was doing them for himself. He wasn't doing those things for the sake of other people who he was serving He was serving them really from an underlying selfish motivation. He was really doing it for himself in order to get something in return from God. And here's what happens when you understand the gospel, that you don't have to earn your way before God because Jesus already did it for you. You no longer have to promote yourself to God and promote who you are in God's eyes. You can actually begin to love and to serve people and to love and to serve God for God's sake and for those people's sake and no longer for your own selfish motivations, not only to get something out of it for yourself. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul says, when, when you really understand the gospel, when you understand what Jesus has done for you, what it does, it takes a hold of your heart. He says it constrains you. No longer will you live for yourself, but you will live your life for him who, for your sake, died and rose again. You see, good works are not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. They're not the root of our salvation, but they are the fruit of our salvation. True faith will always be manifested in outward ways. But that order is really important. It's really important which of those comes first and causes the other. See, the real difference between the Moravian missionaries and John Wesley on that boat that day, they were both going to the new world. They were both going as missionaries. But Wesley was going over there to prove himself. He was going over there in order to get God to notice him, in order to get God to accept him, to get God to bless him. The Moravians, on the other hand, they were going over there because they were moved by the gospel, because they realized that God already had noticed them. God already had blessed them. God already had accepted them in Christ. But I want you to know this. That wasn't the end of John Wesley's story, by the way. See, after that evening at Aldersgate Road, when he heard the gospel and he understood it, and he said he received it by faith, he was moved into action. He got back into ministry, and he traveled around England preaching the gospel. Do you know there are only a handful of towns in England to this day where John Wesley did not preach? He would travel around, and he would preach the gospel. He would plant churches. God used him in an incredible way. But at that point, after he understood the gospel, His motivation for doing it was totally different. No longer was it out of fear. No longer was it a desperate attempt to earn God's favor. Now it was out of joy. It was a response of a heart that had come to know the love of God personally, that had come to hear and receive and know the good news of the gospel, that God saves sinners. And it's not we who save ourselves, but we simply receive by faith what Jesus has done for us. So let me ask you this in closing. Does any of this resonate with you? Have you ever found yourself doing good things, but for the wrong reasons? Have you ever found yourself trying to say, okay, God, I'll meet you in the middle. I'll do it halfway. I'll do my part. It'll be your grace and my works, and we'll come together. We'll meet in the middle. Or let me ask you this. Have you come to understand the gospel? Has the gospel taken hold of your heart? Does it move you to love and good works? Maybe there are some of you who say, you know, that thing about what faith is, knowledge, assent, and truth. I get the knowledge. I get the assent. But the, the trust part, that's where I need to take a step personally and entrust myself to him as my Lord. I need to receive the gospel by faith. I want to encourage you today to put your faith and your trust in Jesus and what he did for you, whether it's for the first time or whether it's for the 500th time. I want to encourage you to do that today, to rely on him, to cling to him, and to receive by faith what he has done for you. Amen? Lord, we thank you for your grace towards us. Lord, your grace that saves us, your grace that makes us new. And Lord, may we have that unwavering, unshakable confidence in your grace. Lord, would you do that work in our hearts? Would you make us into new people? Would you breathe into us new life and transform us? Lord, thank you for this promise, the justification, the righteousness. These aren't things that we have to earn or work for. Lord, these are things that you have given to us as a gift. May we receive them today by faith. May we cling to you. May we rely on you. May we trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.